Acts chapter 7. We'll dive in at verse 37, but in way of introduction, should remind you that Stephen here in this chapter is on trial. Now, it's kind of a different kind of trial because you would think that most individuals being tried, being falsely accused, being examined, would upon their opportunity mount some sort of defense. But we see Stephen doing the opposite. Instead of mounting a defense, he takes the opportunity. They're standing before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful men in the land. He uses the opportunity, instead of defending himself, for his integrity was before the Lord. We see that he speaks into the lives of these religious leaders, presenting for them an honest recounting of their history. You see, Stephen is wanting to illustrate five lessons. And obviously these five lessons tie in with the accusations that they had levied against him. The accusations that he had been speaking blasphemy in much a similar way of Jesus concerning Moses and the law and their customs and the temple. And so Stephen sends them back into history, jumps in a time machine, takes them back and picks out certain events, certain important events to illustrate, to highlight lessons that they had forgotten. First, he takes them back to Abraham. And in doing so, he shows that Abraham's relationship with God illustrated that faith in Jesus, it wasn't blasphemy. It wasn't something new. It wasn't even something that radical. Faith in Jesus was in and of itself simply consistent with the very life that God had called Abraham to live and thus had commissioned them to live. Secondly, he takes them back to the patriarchs and their interactions with Joseph. And he does this to also illustrate that God actually used their very rejection of Jesus to exalt him to a position of savior. They rejected him, treated their brother with contempt, sold him into slavery, and yet we're told God was with him. The whole time, they rejected Joseph, but God had accepted him. And in the process of their rejection, Joseph finds himself being exalted to the position of savior. And what's great, is not only was he in this position of savior, but he was more than willing Joseph to minister and to save and to work even in the lives of the very men who had rejected him, who had treated him so poorly. And then we see in Moses an interesting story. Now, why these religious leaders had placed all their faith in Moses to deliver them from sin, Stephen explains that Moses... Moses was nothing more than a failed deliverer. It was silly to place your faith in Moses. You know, Moses initially believed, according to Stephen, that God would deliver his brethren, how? By his hand, which is why he rose up and struck down the Egyptian. And yet, the Jews, the Jews rightly understood that Moses was acting in the flesh, you see, they rejected Moses because they, they recognized that he was operating not under the commission or the calling of God, but in his own strength, in his own ability. This was not the way God would deliver the people. They understood this, so they rejected Moses. They understood that the job of deliverance was not for Moses, but it was reserved for God and he alone. And where Moses failed, God would prove able by doing what? Delivering them by his own hand. Now, for the context of the section of Scripture we're about to look at this morning, let's look back at what Stephen says in verse 35 and 36. As we did last Sunday, I'm going to emphasize a few key parts of this to help you understand what Stephen's really saying. 
He begins, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one, note, that God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer. How? By Moses' hand? By Moses' strength? By Moses' tenacity? No, by instead the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And we know by context that this angel is none other than God. For when Moses asked this angel in the burning bush, whom should I say has sent me? Not only does the angel say that I am the God of Abraham, the Isaac and Jacob of your forefathers, but he says, just say, I am that I am. Interestingly enough, Jesus would later say that before Abraham was, I am. The religious leaders understood what he was saying, which is why they picked up stones to kill him there. But we're told that he, and in the original language, it's more of this, brought them out. After he had shown or literally performed, there's no pronoun there, wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. You see the subject of the deliverance, of the activity, of bringing them out, performing wonders and signs. This was the hand of the angel, not the hand of Moses. It's the subject. You see, the only reason from this passage in the context we find in in Exodus chapter 4 that the Jewish people rallied around Moses the second time. They rejected him the first time. He was acting in the flesh. They had every right to. It was responsible to. The second time they accepted Moses. Why? Because it had become clear to not just Moses, but to the people that this man would be an instrument. He wouldn't deliver the people, but he would be used by God to deliver them. And it's with this context that Stephen now transitions to his next point. Because these religious men had failed to learn from history by placing their faith in Moses instead of God, their rejection of Jesus now flowed from a misguided reliance on the religious formalities of the law, the religious customs, and the temple. Verse 37, Acts chapter 7. Stephen says, this is that Moses, or he, who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now, in order to understand the context behind this particular verse, because it seems initially a little out of place, you must first understand why the religious leaders place so much faith in Moses. You see, they placed so much faith in Moses because they believed that Moses was the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets for one reason and one reason alone. According to Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, it was Moses who had interacted, who had seen God face to face. Moses is the only human being to have ever done so. And so the Jews, seeing this as being particular to Moses, thus viewed Moses as the greatest of all the prophets, which is why they now viewed the law of Moses, this revelation that God had given Moses, their deliverer, as the ultimate revelation of God. And yet Stephen is doing something interesting here. In verse 37, Stephen is reminding them. He's pointing back to a fatal flaw in this perspective. For in Deuteronomy 18, Moses made an an interesting prophecy. He predicted that in the future, God would raise up a prophet like me from your brethren. It's an interesting phrase. Then Stephen actually continues by reminding his audience that even Moses encouraged the people that when this prophet arises, they should do what? 
Listen to him. Pay attention to him. Accept his words. Now, this Mosaic prophecy concerning this future prophet is significant for four basic reasons. First, most simplistically, as God sent Moses, God would be sending another prophet. Now, understand that in regards to the roles of certain men that God would use in the Old Testament, you have two basic categories. You have the priests, and the priest's job was to represent humanity before the throne room of God. You would come to the priest. You would offer sacrifices. And the priest would act as a go-between, representing you, the people, before God. A prophet's job was the opposite. A prophet was sent by God to represent God to the people. He was, in many ways, God's megaphone, his mouthpiece. Over and over and over again, a prophet would be raised up, sent to the people by God with a message from God, representing God to the people. And so as God sent Moses in, in this role of, of deliverer to bring the law, this significant role, God would also send another prophet. Secondly, we're told that this prophet would be what? Like Moses. Now, while many of the prophets that God would send to Israel following Moses, it's clear this prophet would be a bit unique. Moses uses this phrase. He says that the prophet would be how like me. And what does that mean? Well, I think first it means that the very qualifier that made Moses unique would also make this prophet unique. And what made Moses unique? He had spoken to God face to face. So at the minimum, this prophet would have a very personal relationship with God. But also, I think the calling, the role of Moses is, is once again unique to Moses and thus would be unique to this particular prophet. Not only would this prophet be like Moses in the sense that this prophet would have such a personal relationship with God, such as he would speak face to face with God, but would also come in a similar role, a similar capacity. As Moses was sent to be God's instrument of deliverance, so too would this prophet be like Moses in regards to the fact that he would be sent by God to the people for the role of delivering. And to their credit, Scripture affirms the reality that these religious leaders were indeed looking for the arrival of this future prophet. When John the Baptist arrived on the scene, in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, something interesting takes place. We're told that the Jews, these religious leaders, same religious leaders, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to John, and they asked him, who are you? So John confessed, did not deny, but confessed. He made it clear, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not this promised Savior. So they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, John denies being this prophet, but it's interesting for their very inquiry reveals that in addition to looking for Elijah, and according to Malachi chapter three, we're told that Elijah would be the forerunner of the Messiah, that Elijah would come appear before the people before the Messiah would arrive. They were looking for Elijah. Even today during the Passover Seder, there's a part in the meal where they, they take a pause, kind of a siesta. They send the kids out to look for Elijah. They have a chair even set aside in the Seder for Elijah himself because they're looking for the coming of Elijah. So they're like, are you Elijah? And he's like, no, I'm not. 
But then the religious leaders asked John what? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? Two additional people. Now, the traditional religious perspective of the day was that God, according to Old Testament scripture, would be sending, in a future sense, two separate people to Israel, the prophet and the Messiah. Now, today we understand that Jesus would end up fulfilling both of these two roles on two separate occasions. As prophet, Jesus would deliver the people like Moses from their spiritual bondage. As Christ, Jesus would establish a future physical kingdom in Jerusalem. And for the student of scripture, if you're interested in eschatology or the study of end times, this explains why in future uh, interactions with Israel, that they'll be deceived and rally around two individuals, won't they? According to Revelation 13, not only will they rally around a false Messiah, who we would call an antichrist, but they would also be deceived by whom? A false prophet. Today, they're still looking for two people to come to Israel. Now, to be clear that Jesus is indeed this prophet. We're told in John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47, that Jesus, he told the people this. He said, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. <laughs> there is one who already accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. Then catch it. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? For Moses wrote about me. And where did Moses write about Jesus? I think it's the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. And so we see that in regards to this Mosaic prophecy, as God sent Moses, God would be sending another prophet. This prophet would be like Moses. Thirdly, the message of this prophet, in context to the first two points, would therefore be on par with the message of Moses. Now here's the brilliance of Stephen's argument, this transitional verse. If God sent Jesus as this prophet, which is undoubtedly what Stephen is claiming, then Jesus's message would carry equal weight with the message that God had initially given Moses. So if God's doing the sending, he sends Moses and he sends another prophet like Moses, then it's only logical to view Jesus's message as carrying the same level of authority as the message that God had given Moses, which was what? The law. Understand, Jesus' message, and this is Stephen's point, did not seek to diminish or discredit or even supersede the law of Moses. Rather, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus simply affirmed, he had not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to do what? But to fulfill. So God would send a prophet. This prophet would be like Moses. Thus, this prophet's message would be equal. It would carry equal weight with the law, with the message that God had given Moses. And then finally, the prophet's message would then be the final essence of God's revelation. It would seem that before transitioning to his next history lesson, that Stephen wants these religious leaders to realize that even Moses, the failed deliverer that they were placing so much faith and trust in, even Moses recognized 
the obvious limitations of the law, which is why he did what? To look for, to wait for, to anticipate another prophet, another person sent by God to listen to obey the man who would come after him. Basically, Stephen's argument here is that the law of Moses served to set the stage for the message of Jesus. Well, verse 38, and we're going to read quite a few verses here before we begin to to unpack them. Stephen continues that this is he, this Moses, who is in the congregation and the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles, the law given to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, and he quotes from Exodus 32, make us gods to go before us. For this Moses, who has brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, and he quotes from Amos chapter 5, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech, the star of your god Ramphan, images which you made to worship. So I will carry you away beyond Babylon. And our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as God appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought it with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles. He's recounting the Exodus, the book of Joshua, Judges, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. And then Stephen quotes from Isaiah 66, however, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? Says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Now to understand the flow, the interesting flow of Stephen's sermon here, you should realize that I believe that following verse 37, the implications of verse 37, that there is, in in a sense, an unspoken question that's kind of ringing out in the air, that there is an unspoken thought, this idea, an implication, that everyone's considering... No one's verbalizing, but Stephen addresses. The question, for our benefit, I believe would be something like this. If Jesus, as Stephen's claiming, was indeed this prophet predicted by Moses, then why would Jesus speak against the law and the temple? This is the accusation that they had against Jesus originally, 
that he had spoken against the law of Moses, that he had spoken against the temple, that he had said that it would be destroyed and in three days he would raise it up. Same accusation being levied against Stephen. So they're thinking if Jesus is this prophet sent by God on par with Moses, like Moses, on par with Moses, carrying a similar, then why would it seem that Jesus is so contradictory or so against all of these things that we hold to be true, that we believe that Moses established? Now, first, Stephen makes it abundantly clear that contrary to the accusation that had been brought against him and earlier Jesus, never once did either of these two men speak against the law of Moses or the temple. They were accusing them of such things, but it wasn't true. As a matter of fact, Stephen goes a step further in this passage by affirming that God established both of these two institutions, the law and the temple, for a good reason, to help the people in the development of the covenant relationship that God desired to have with them that he had promised Abraham. So Stephen's like, you're thinking that I'm speaking against the law of Moses, that Jesus was speaking against the law of Moses, and you're having a hard time reconciling the two. Well, right up front, let's make it clear. The law, the temple, we're not speaking against them. There are good things. There's nothing wrong with them. As a matter of fact, God gave them. He affirms this. He says that Moses did what? He received the living oracles. Like, how did the people get the law? They got the law, not because Moses had this imagination, but because God gave it to them. Matter of fact, we're told that God personally wrote out the law, etched it in stone, gave the tablets to Moses. Now, he comes down, sees the calf, he breaks them, has to go back up for take two, and then God uses some angels. I don't fully understand all of that. You can study it on your own. Hebrews, weird book. But God gave them the oracles. And we're also told, he also affirms, that as God appointed, as God instructed Moses, Moses made the tabernacle. How? According to the pattern that he had seen. So right from the beginning, Stephen is wanting to, to, to kind of defuse the situation by saying, whoa, guys, you're trusting in Moses. That, that's stupid. He's a failed deliverer. You should have learned that lesson. Only God can deliver. But now you're upset with us because you think we're speaking against the law and, and, and the, the temple, but we're not. God gave them. They're good in and of themselves. Now, you should first consider to understand where Stephen is going, why did God give the Jews the law? I mean, in God's great plan, why give them the law at all? Why was the law important? Why was it significant? Why did God personally scribe it out and deliver it? I think the answer might surprise you a little. I believe that God gave the Jews the law in order to explain, to go on the record, to make it abundantly clear how his people could fully enjoy the unmerited favor that they had as being the people of God. Now, don't forget, while Abraham had been chosen by God, as we've looked at, for no other reason than how? God's grace. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. Abraham did nothing. He was a pagan idolater living in Ur. Yet God chose him. He chose him because he loved him. He chose him because of his grace. Abraham had done nothing to earn it. 
But we also saw in the recounting of the interactions with Abraham that the only way that Abraham could fully experience the unmerited favor that God was willing to bestow to him, he had to be obedient. He had to obey the commands of God. If you recall, it was because of his partial obedience that what happened? He only got to the next town over, Haran. He said, leave behind your father. Leave behind this country. Go to a land I'll promise you. Abraham's like, sweet, we'll leave, but I'm taking pops with me. Terah comes with him, and they get stuck until what? Terah dies. If you're not going to be obedient, you're not going to enjoy the land. Grace, unmerited favor, we don't earn it, but how do we experience it? Through obedience. And the same is true concerning the nation of Israel. As long as the people obeyed the law of God, they would enjoy the unmerited blessings of God. And yet, when they would not obey God, these blessings would be withheld. And while the religious leaders understood, they recognized the importance of obedience. Their entire religious framework was set up for obedience. Here's the problem. They had failed to recognize the fundamental mechanism for obedience as exemplified in the example of Abraham. You see, this was the principal issue that Jesus had with the law and Stephen had with the law. You see, though Abraham had come to realize that his relationship with God and his obedience to God relied entirely on his faith in God, the Jews, these religious leaders, had substituted human effort, what we would call works, in the place of divine revelation, or what we would call faith. See, the Hebrew people Instead of looking back to Abraham and realizing that the key to all of this, the key to enjoying God's grace, the key to uh, obeying God so that I can enjoy his grace, like the key to both of these things is not to walk in the flesh, but to walk in the spirit. It's not to do it on myself, but to live a life of faith. Abraham demonstrated faith. You see, sadly, instead of looking upward, the Jews, their fatal flaw is that they looked inward. And the results were tragic. Stephen points, recounts their history to explain that reliance on human effort only resulted in disobedience, worldliness, idolatry, and judgment. Let's look at the progression of these things as laid out in the text. First, they were disobedient. So God had called them out of Egypt, called them to the land that he had promised their forefathers. All they had to do is just obey God. Gave them the law. Just obey it. Everything will be great and grand. I'll go before you. I'll provide for you. You can maximize the experience, the life. I Just obey me. But they didn't, did they? Constantly, over and over and over, they robbed themselves of the life that God would have for them. How? Because they failed to obey God. Guys, obedience is key. <laughs> We're told that our fathers, they would what? They would not obey, but rejected. Oh, the irony. Here they were accusing Stephen of speaking against the law when their very history revealed an obvious and consistent inability to obey the law. Even the very generation that God had miraculously delivered from Egypt, even that generation, 
proved incapable of obedience apart from faith. We're, they're called the generation of unbelief. They lack faith, the faithless generation. They get all the way up to the land. They send in the spies. You remember the story. And what ends up happening? They're like, they're giants. We can't do it. The very God that drowned the armies of Egypt couldn't handle a few giants. And it's what? Because of their unbelief, the, their inability to walk by faith, to trust God to fulfill his promises that the entire generation died out. And why had they been so disobedient? Well, it was worldliness. Stephen says that in their hearts, they did what? They turned back to Egypt. Over and over and over again, if you study the history of these people, the root cause of their national disobedience had been a basic love of sin and a desire to conform to the world. Why had they been disobedient? Because they love sin more than they love righteousness. They love the world more than they love God. Their hearts had turned back to Egypt, which is why they didn't obey, but rejected. You know, the law may have given them a blueprint for obedience, but the law in and of itself, it had failed to do one key thing. It had failed to change their hearts. Do you experience that even in your own life? If we're stubborn and we're resistant, if our hearts are not wanting to obey, no amount of rules is going to change that. If my son Quincy is insistent on not going to bed, there's no amount of rules that I can levy his direction to change his rotten heart. And yes, it is a rotten heart. On the side note, we were at lunch the other day, and Quincy interrupts Jess and I, and he says, we need to pray. And we're like, okay. And he goes, well, what, what are we going to pray for, Quincy? And he says, for my sins. And I'm like, for your sins? He's like, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. My two-and-a-half-year-old is cognitive at this point that he is a little dirty sinner and that he is in need of salvation. And so we just like set down the forks and knives and we're like, you are a sinner and we need to pray for you. Absolutely. So he closed his little hands and prayed. But if your heart's not, if your heart's wicked, right? Not, no amount of rules is gonna change it. Like, if you want to cheat on your taxes, guess what? Like, there's a, a gigantic book that's like this big of rules saying you can't do that. But if you want to, you're going to do what? Eh, I'm not going to pay attention to any of those. I'm just going to do it on my own. You see, disobedience, it, it, it flowed from worldliness, which ultimately led to idolatry. We read that, that they said to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. <laughs> Here the God of Israel had triumphed over the gods of Egypt. Don't think that those 10 plagues were by accident. Each one of them were targeting a specific pagan Egyptian God. 
See, the God of Israel was saying to everyone, I am more powerful than anything. I am the true God. And here they were, after seeing all that, wanting them to make an idol. Sadly, not only would the people of God disobey the law of God, but they would actively turn against the God of the law. You know, if, if we discuss our relationship with Jesus as being one of, of a bride to a husband, you know, it, it's, it's one thing for a bride to, to not follow her husband, to, to disobey, and I say that loosely, but to act in rebellion to, for there to be a divide, a, a, a fissure, a, a, a break in communication or, or, or that of will. One thing for a wife to say, I don't care what you want me to do. I'm doing my own thing. But it's a much more grievous atrocity for that wife to then cheat on her husband. You see, not only had the children of Israel refused to obey God, which was worse, which was bad, but then they had taken it another step, didn't they? Because we're told they went after foreign gods, Molech and Ramtha. We're also told that they rejoiced in what? And the works of their own hands. You know, it's true that all idolatry, all idolatry, it comes back to a love of self and a desire to create gods in our own image. There is a God. It's either the true God or the God you want to make, which is ultimately you. What God will you serve? And they went after idols. And as a result, there was judgment. For we're told God turned, gave them up, carried them away to Babylon. Because of their disobedience and the grievous sin of idolatry, God judged them by A, removing them from the land that he had promised to give them, and B, sending them to where? Babylon. Ironically, the land of idolatry. It's kind of like here they were. We're disobeying you. We're rejecting you. We want our own gods. They're pursuing idols. Things that were taking a priority over the real God. And so God does what? Okay, if you want idols, well, you're not going to be here. So I'll send you to a land where you'll just have so many idols, they'll be coming out of your nose. Isn't it interesting that God judges them by just giving them what they want? Have you, have you noticed that God often judges us the same way? When we're in rebellion, when we're in resistance, when we're disobeying God, that often the judgment of God is simply lev levied by God saying, okay, it's all yours, baby. Go for it. And as a result, everything falls apart. You want to be your own God? Go for it. See how good a job you can do. We see that. They pursued idols, so God sent them to the land of idols. He gave them what they wanted. Ultimately, isn't that what hell is? Not to say that we want fire and brimstone, but if hell in its most simplistic definition is eternal separation from God, you live your entire life thumbing the nose at God. I don't want anything to do with you. I want to live my own life. I'm in rebellion. To, I, don't care. I don't care about you. I don't want a relationship with you, Jesus. Do you think when you die, you magically now want to hang out with Jesus? Like, that would be hell, wouldn't it? Like, I know you, like the 75 years you spent on earth, you kind of like hated me, hated the people that followed me, didn't want to hang out with me at all. But now that you've died, 
ta-da, you're stuck with me for eternity. Like that, would, that would be hell. You see, all Jesus does is he says, depart. I didn't know you. I'll just give you what you wanted, life without me. Have at it. Go for it. It's yours. Sad. Now understand, the law had been given. Why? Because <laughs> God desired obedience. He gave them the law so that they would obey the law. Why? Because it was the only way they could fully enjoy the life that he had called them to live. Don't minimize the importance of obedience to God, friend. We are saved by grace through faith, but that grace came at a great price. And for us to enjoy that grace, we should obey God. And yet, the fundamental problem with these Israelites and these religious leaders, it boiled down to the false belief that they could obey the law of God apart from faith in God. You see, Stephen is pointing to their failure in order to demonstrate that the law was designed to teach us that it's impossible for anyone to obey God and to enjoy the grace of God apart from what? Faith in God. You need faith to enjoy the life that I've promised you. You need faith to be obedient. If you look at Abraham, it's all about faith. And to illustrate that this was God's plan all along, he gave them the law to show them the framework of obedience. But then he does something to keep their eyes on what would enable that obedience. He gives them the temple, the tabernacle. Now, the question we should ask, similar to the one with the law, why did God give the Jews the temple, the tabernacle? The answer, I think, was once again a bit interesting. I believe that God gave them the tabernacle to keep their eyes on what should have been the object of their faith. The key to obedience, the key to enjoying the life God had called them for, the key to it all was to keep their eyes on God. You see, the purpose of the temple had not been to provide God a place to reside. This is why Stephen quotes from Isaiah, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Heaven is his throne. You see, the purpose of this dwelling place was to provide the people a physical reminder of the presence of God. Stephen explains that God instructed Moses to make the tabernacle according to what? The pattern he had seen. And further passages indicate that the tabernacle, later the temple, were designed. They were modeled after what? After heaven. The entire idea of the tabernacle was to provide the people a constant reminder that the very God who had called them out of Egypt was also present to help them reside in the land he had called them to and to remain obedient to the law he had given. This is why the placement of the tabernacle is so interesting. The camp of Israel in the wilderness, after the law, how was it structured? For the student of scripture, you'll recall that the tabernacle was placed in the middle of the camp where the Shekinah, of, the Shekinah glory of God would fill and the entire camp of Israel would be spread around it and outwards, everyone facing the tabernacle. It was in the very center of the camp. And the purpose was to help the people always keep their eyes where? On self? 
No. On God. To keep their eyes heavenward and rely on God no matter what the situation they faced. While the law explained the expectation of obedience, the tabernacle was designed to remind them of the mechanism by which they could obey. The key for victory, the mechanism for obedience. It rested how and what? Their relationship with God, not in their own might. Stephen's point, it's profound. He's telling them that the entire purpose of the law, the entire purpose of the temple was to encourage the people to have faith in God. Not faith in self, not faith in Moses, not faith in your own ability, not faith in works, not faith in religion. He's saying the law and the temple exist so that you might keep your eyes on heaven. For the same God who was able to deliver the people was the only way by which they would be able to live the lives of godliness. Tragically, these religious leaders, they rejected Jesus. Why? They rejected Jesus because they thought their obedience to God could be attained apart from faith in God. <laughs> Stephen points back to history and says, that's stupid. I had a frustrating experience earlier this week. I believe it was Tuesday. Forecast called for showers later in the day, and, and it had been two weeks since I had mowed the yard, and, and the grass is growing and starting to irritate me, and so... My son Quincy loves yard work. He loves getting out, working in the yard. But this was one of those days where it was like, it's hot, I gotta get it done. And I typically really enjoy yard work. This was not one of the like experience of joy. This was one of pure necessity. And so I get out and I mow the yard. And then I, and then I according to the routine, and Quincy can recount it for you, you mow and then you edge and then you weed eat. And then I like to even blow off the yard to get the, the extra clippings. Well, when I get to the weed-eating phase, Jessica decides to send Quincy outside to help Daddy with the weed-eating. I think it was more Mommy just needed baby boy out of the house for a little while. And so here we were, and I'm trying to watch my son and weed-eat. That's impossible. Like, it's impossible, even to the point that, like, Jessica, like, comes out the back deck, and she's like, where's Quincy? And I'm like, I have no idea. I've totally given up. I don't know where he is. He's run away for all I know. I can't do both. And that didn't sit well with Mama Bear. But this was the thought that kind of came to me. You know, when you are so focused on the task at hand. When your eyes are, for the most part, focused on the things of this earth. When you're trying to do, fulfill your obligations, to, to be responsible, you're doing good. If your eyes are on the tasks in front of you, it's impossible to keep your eyes on the sun. You see, the most important thing is not the yard. The most important thing is Quincy. Spending time with my son, it's the relationship I have with him. But if I'm so focused in all these things, I can't, I can't do both. And that's the flaw with humanity, that we get so fixated on the tasks in front of us that we lose sight of what's most important. You can't keep your eyes down 
and upwards at the same time. It's impossible. (laughs) The solution? Well, after the look from Mama Bear, I decided, all right, I've got to do something a little different here. And so I just decided he had his blower, and I was like, Quincy, you just get in front of me, and you blow, and I'll weed eat. And it took me like five times as longer, and it's like 95 degrees, and I'm just not enjoying myself at all. But, but the key is I could, I could keep my eyes on the sun and fulfill the task if I didn't go it alone. If I just included him, it was so much easier to keep my eyes on him. You've been called to live a life of godliness. You're called to obey. God has graciously laid out a path. The only way that you can fully fulfill that is to do it with Jesus, is to keep your eyes on him. And sadly, these religious leaders failed to do this, so Stephen says, and this is where it's like drop the mic time. Verse 51, forget about this history. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. You have received the law by the direction of angels, but you have not kept it. He's speaking to the 71 most powerful people in the land. The very people who killed Jesus, persecuted the apostles, hold his life in their hands, or so they think. They have Stephen on trial. But Stephen has opened up scripture, and he has done what? He has put them on trial. And the verdict? First, you're stiff-necked. Literally, he says, you're stubborn. You're headstrong. Which indicates that Stephen knew that what he was saying, they, it was ringing true. As he's looking at his audience, he knows that he has dropped some knowledge bombs that were unavoidable. He had pricked a nerve. But then he says, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Though these men, they had been circumcised according to the flesh, it was obvious that their rejection of God's word, their resistance to the examples of those who had gone before them, had revealed what? Oh, on the outside, you look like you have it all together, but your heart is very far from God. And then he says that you are actively resisting the Holy Spirit. And much the same way as their fathers, these men, they knew the truth, but they were doing what? They were resisting it. Or literally, they were opposing. They were striving against the will of God. (laughs) They had been accusing Stephen of blasphemy. But in this moment, he indicts them for a far worse crime. He says, just as your fathers killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, you took things to the logical end and you killed the very prophet they foretold. You boast in the law. You don't keep the law. You have become betrayers and murderers. Now, we'll get to their reaction to this next Sunday. But in conclusion, to Stephen's sermon, I want to point out an underlying theme that's obvious, it's unavoidable, 
it weaves its web consistently through the whole story. But it's that even when you reject what God is doing, as a matter, you're the source of that rejection, that God is still faithful to give you a second chance. Have you noticed that? Abraham wasn't obedient to leave his father behind. But when his father died, what did God do? God was gracious again. Came to Abraham again and said, Yo, Abe, you ready? Take two? Patriarchs, they failed to recognize Joseph as their savior on the first trip to Egypt. But Joseph, he was still willing to do what on the second arrival? To reveal himself, to give them another chance. God resisted Moses when he stepped out to deliver the people in his own strength. But after 40 years in the wilderness, was God done with Moses? He committed murder. But no, God appeared and said, Moses, I have a plan for you still. The people had been disobedient to the law. They had followed their false gods. The result, they had been exiled into Babylon. But was God through with them? Now, 70 years later, God graciously gave them a second chance to return to the land. <laughs> Even though the people would reject almost every prophet who foretold the coming of the Christ, in the end, what did God do? He still sent his only begotten son. And these men, though they were rejecting Jesus, they had rejected Jesus. What's the point of Stephen's whole sermon here? Is the point to condemn them? Is the point to drop the hammer, walk off stage right? Now Stephen's entire purpose, at great risk and peril to himself, by the way, was to plead with these men to do what? To stop resisting what God wanted to do in their lives. You're rejecting Jesus. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. Don't. Look back at history. The entire sermon oozed love. It oozed compassion. It used, oozed persuasion. You see, the fifth and final lesson from Stephen's sermon is that though these men had initially rejected Jesus, the prophet who had been sent by God, Stephen is telling them, he's pleading with them, if you would just stop resisting. If you would stop it, stop God would be more than willing to give you a second chance <laughs> and a third chance, a fourth chance, and a fifth chance. Stephen, these men are hardened, but God sent Stephen not only to shine a light, but sent him with a message that though you may have rejected Jesus, if you would just stop, Jesus has so much he wants to do in your lives. Guys, that's our message to the world. That's the message that God is sending you out with. We've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. The purpose of what we're doing right now 
is for you to be equipped with the word, for God to speak into your heart so that you can go out and be a missionary. Our ministry is to minister to you, to equip you for the ministry. There are friends and family and people you know that need to hear that God is willing to give them a second chance, that the Bible tells us there's nothing we can do to separate ourselves from the love of God. And so, Father...